Well, today we reach a point where we are ending this series that we've been spending quite a few weeks on, uh, focusing upon our mission, vision, and values. We've covered a lot of ground over the past number of weeks, and uh, what we've been doing is basically presenting the findings of, of the next team, which is, as you recall, about two years ago almost now, believe it or not. Uh, we put together a group of people from, from leadership and also from people from the congregation to come together to do some research and prayerful discerning as to what has God been doing around us out there, what has he been doing among us in here, and how do we merge with him to, to go forward uh, in, in his will, in his purposes for us as a church, but also as we reach uh, with missional purposes, how we reach the community in which he's planted us. And so we've really been talking about that, about how God has called us, equipped us, and sent us to merge with him in his mission. And when we're finished uh, here today, as you leave the sanctuary, the ushers will be at the doors, and they're going to have a little one-page, a little kind of a half-page summary for you that will have the mission, vision, and the value statements on them. We want to encourage you to take these home, to read them, to, to hang them on your fridge, to stick them into the cover of your Bible, uh, maybe a notebook you have for devotional time, and to prayerfully consider these things, to, to be asking yourself any groups, small groups, or connect groups you might find yourself in throughout the week, what would it look like for us to live these out? What would it look like for us to grow in these areas? And what difference could that make And what God is calling us to do in this church, through this church, in the community around us? So we're going to have those for you as you leave the service here today. And, and we're going to continue to talk about this language. You're going to hear these phrases come up time and time again in the days ahead as well. Now we've talked a lot these past few weeks about ourselves. We've talked about who we are becoming, what we're striving to do, what we're striving to, to be about. But before we finish the final value today, I want to draw your attention back to where we started the year. Because I knew that for this whole series, we'd be talking a lot about, about us. But I also knew that that's not a good place to start. And that's not the main point. Do you remember where we started the year? We started the year with a short little three-week series called Ready, Set, Go that was all focused upon the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is what this is all about. Even though we've been talking a lot about us, it's all about the kingdom of God. And if you remember from that series, we define the kingdom of God as God's rule and reign in the hearts and in the lives of people. When Jesus Christ arrived on the scene, one of the very first things he said when he entered into ministry, recorded it, for example, in the book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus said, the first words Mark records, Jesus saying, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And the purpose and the mission of Jesus was to make a way for us to be able to enter into the relationship with the Father so that we could experience that kingdom life. And for those in the world who chose to live according to God's will through Jesus Christ, for those who chose to set their hearts upon the things above, not upon the things below. To set their hearts and minds upon the things of God's concern, not upon the concerns and the things of man. To those people, they are counted and considered citizens of the kingdom of God. Paul tells us that in Philippians chapter 3 where he says, Our citizenship is in heaven. And so we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what that means. That means that our home is not here. Our home is in heaven. And that we are temporary residents on this earth. 
Now, perhaps in the world around you, you feel that tension at times, that that causes you tension. You know that there's another worldly place, that that there's a heaven that we long for and that one day we will reside in. But in the here and now, we live in this place kind of like a fish out of water. We know we're here, but it's not exactly our homeland. Perhaps you know what that tension feels like. As I thought about this past week, of a time when I maybe felt that tension of being a stranger or being in a a room where I knew I kind of stood out and was a little bit awkward, it reminded me of when I was a teenager and I was invited to go to a wedding with a friend once. Now, this, this friend of mine had been a little bit distant from her family and it was a family wedding and so she's like, you know, I don't really want to go but I have to go, will you be my plus one? And I thought, yeah. I'll be a good friend. How hard is this, right? I'm used to going to churches and weddings. So you walk in, you sit down, you listen to a service, you leave, you're done. You're a good friend. So I thought, sure, I can do this. So we get dressed up. We go to the wedding. We arrive just in time, and we get a seat around the middle of the sanctuary. And as I look around, I can tell pretty quick, this is a small wedding of just family. Because everyone's talking, look around. I'm the only person who feels like I really stick out like a sore thumb. And then as the service begins, the bride walks down. I think, isn't this curious? I actually know the bride. It was a lady that I went to elementary school with. And it's kind of neat that I'm here at her wedding. So anyways, the service finishes. And as everyone stands to leave, there's a receiving line just past the doors of the sanctuary. And we all get in line. We're about six people away from the bride and groom. And suddenly, my friend gets pulled away by an aunt who hadn't seen her for years and years. And they start chatting off the side and leave me alone in this line. And I start feeling very, very alone. And it gets worse and worse the closer I get to the bride because this is a purely family wedding that I've just crashed. Now, and I have nobody there to introduce me to the bride. And I'll never forget the look on her face as I walked up to her and I said, well, congratulations. And she looks at me and she goes, who are you? Why are you here at my wedding? And and then her face changed. I don't know if it changed because she remembered me from kindergarten and she thought, why is this person from kindergarten suddenly reappearing at my wedding like 20 years later? Or what is going on here? But I remember that I never felt so awkward and all alone in a crowd as I did in that moment. I was definitely a stranger who did not belong there in that setting. Well, as citizens of the kingdom of God, at times it can feel like we're out of place, like we're strangers, like we are perhaps even, to use the word, exiles. And to see it another way, we can actually think back to the passage that Aaron read during our worship service here earlier this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where it says that those who are in Christ are, are not just referred to as strangers and aliens and exiles, but actually Paul there refers to them as ambassadors, And that puts a whole new spin on it all of a sudden. Because a stranger and an alien in a foreign distant land who now is an ambassador is in that place with purpose. They're there with purpose. See, an ambassador is somebody who takes the very best of their homeland and brings it to the country to which they're stationed. And this is something that's been practiced throughout time and throughout history, even up into present day, where if a foreign dignitary arrives in a new country, what do they do? They they tend to bring gifts with them. They bring the best produce of their land, the the best precious materials, workmanship, even entertainment from their land as a gift to the place that they're visiting. It's an effort to communicate that we come in peace. It communicates that we have something to offer to this relationship, that we can have a mutually beneficial existence together. And here at West Meadows, I really believe that we as a worshiping community of God 
who are citizens of heaven are ambassadors to the community in which we live. That we as citizens that have unto God are ambassadors to the community of Lewis Farms in which we geographically exist and beyond. And I believe that with our mission in mind and with our citizenship therefore in mind, the final value that I want to present to you all this morning that is going to be guiding our actions going forward and revealing our priorities is this. Is that one of our values is to strengthen communities where we enrich the lives of Lewis Farms by investing all that we are to do all that we can. Strengthening communities. We have been placed here geographically in this location for 25 years. And there is so much that we have to offer to the surrounding community. We have resources, we have a facility, we have people, we have experience, but most of all, we have the good news of Jesus Christ. And when we are seen as a stakeholder in this community, when we can continue to move towards bringing the very best of the homeland that we represent, when people drive by or walk by that white building on the corner of the Hendy and reach a point where they in their own mind say, that is our church. When we reach that point, we have then become a beacon of hope and peace and salvation to the community around us. And that will serve to strengthen not just the community here within West Meadows, but the community in which we reside. Now, this is not a new concept, actually. It's not a modern idea. You know, throughout Scripture, throughout the Bible, we see that that God has placed his people. He has called them where he needs them to deliver his message of love and redemption. For example, we can see uh, a case of this in the book of Jeremiah. And we're going to take a few minutes to look at Jeremiah. So if you want to open your phones to Jeremiah 29 or your Bibles or you grab one out of the pew there, it's found on page 641. Jeremiah chapter 29. What we have happening in that particular chapter is that God for a long time has been warning his people to obey him, to abide with him. And if they do so, that they will be blessed by him. But he also says there's another side of that coin, that if you wander, that if you are wayward, there will be consequences. And the time comes eventually where God has had enough of the nation's waywardness, and and he allows King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to come through and to, to, to conquer Israel, and then to conquer Judah and Jerusalem in 597 B.C., And after King Nebuchadnezzar conquered these regions, he carried many of the people off to exile in Babylon, where they found themselves as strangers in a new land, surrounded by people they didn't know and understand in a culture that was completely foreign to them. And as they found themselves in exile, it creates a crisis of identity and even a crisis of existence for the nation. And so in the midst of this exiled people in crisis, God sends them a letter through the prophet Jeremiah. He sends them a letter found in in Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 4, that lays out the instructions and the assurance that he has for them. And he says this in verse 4. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those that I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you prosper. 
Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams <clears throat> to the dreams you encourage them to have. They have prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent those people to you, declares the Lord. The first thing I want to draw your attention to in this passage is that sometimes God carries people to a place and to a land that is not of their choosing. But he uses them when they get there. You see, they were disobedient, and so they were relocated. And this, this was sort of a disorientating situation for them, but it was not disorientating to God. It, it did not surprise nor stymie God. In fact, he says at the very beginning, I am the one who carried you there. God says, I am the one who carried you into exile. And in that statement, there is this sense of assurance because they have not been abandoned. It wasn't that God just sort of wiped his hands and says, hey, whatever happens to you, happens to you, I warned you. He says, no, I am the one who carried you there. I have not abandoned you even when you find yourselves in exile. You see, Nebuchadnezzar may have been the one who was, who was the hammer that conquered the cities, but God is the arm that is swinging that hammer. And in this case, there's a degree of punishment that's involved with it because of their waywardness that led to them being taken away. But, but at other times, that's not the case. At other times, God displaces and moves people around so that they can be his ambassadors because they have a missional purpose. As we think about that idea, uh, perhaps the name Jonah comes to mind for some people. Jonah was not a bad guy. He was God's prophet. He was God's messenger who was very effective. And then one day God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah's like, no, anywhere but there. I'm not going to Nineveh. He was scared. He was unwilling. He ran in the opposite direction. But God needed to carry him to Nineveh, so much so that he arranged for the very first submarine ride to make sure that he got where he needed to go so that he could get there and call people to repentance. God placed him where he needed him to bring that message. Now, by no means is living in Edmonton, Canada, a punishment by any means. People in Calgary may disagree, but, but Calgary is terrible, so we don't want to live there. Edmonton is not a punishment by any means. But we can still feel like we're in exile. When we go to work, when we go to school, when you sit in a classroom or in an office, when you, when you go to a public space, even if you are familiar with the other people in the room, by the fact that you are a Christian and you know that most other people in the room are not, you feel a divide. You can feel there's a distinction between you and them. And it's not uncommon in today's world to be told that your Christian ideals, your Christian beliefs are intolerant and even dangerous. It's not uncommon to be told such things. You know, a guy by the name of James Emery White wrote a book uh, that I read last year called The Rise of the Nuns. Not nuns as in these Catholic women who wear habits, but nuns, N-O-N-E-S, meaning people who have no religious affiliation. Uh, it, it's census time, and when that census comes around, there's a box you can tick for religious affiliation. One of the options is none. And it's the fastest growing category that we find on those census forms and in the world of religious affiliation. I highly recommend this book if you are interested in understanding more of what today's culture, the, the growing culture, especially the under 35 culture, uh, believes and feels and how the church can successfully relate to them. If that's an area of interest to you, I highly recommend this book. And here's one of the things that they reveal. Is if you trace things back to like the 1930s and 40s, only about 5% of the congregation, or, uh, uh, sorry, only about 5% of the community would tick the box none. From the 30s and 40s. You jump up to 1990, it was still only about 8%. So 
So in about a 50-year time span, it had only budged 3%. But from 1990 to 2008, less than 20 years, it went from 8 to 16. It doubled. And from 2008 to 2012, it doubled again. It went from 5 to 8 in 50 years. And then from 8 to 16 in 20 years. And from 16 to over 30 in less than 10 years. It's the fastest growing segment in our world right now. In, in North American world right now. And this is leading to radical changes in society. And it's also one of the reasons that when we as Christian people live our lives out in the world, we can feel like foreigners. We can feel like strangers because there's this rising number of people who identify as none. Now here's the thing about this group. It's not that they have rejected God. They still are asking spiritual questions. They still have spiritual yearnings and desires and are trying to seek out that part of their lives, but they have rejected the church is why they have no religious affiliation. It's not a lack of belief in God. It's a lack of religious affiliation. But they're still asking spiritual questions. It's like being a coffee lover and saying, I just can't find a good cup of joe, even though you drive by 20 Starbucks and Tim Hortons and Second Cups on your way to work every day. It's that sort of a situation. Now, if we are going to grow and be effective in our mission we have to understand these things and understand that we need to do ministry different than we used to do in the past. In the past, when people were very much affiliated with the church and Christian faith, it was easy to reach out to them and have one conversation to share the gospel one time, and a person would go, oh, right, well, of course, that's the piece I was missing. There's just one piece of the puzzle missing in previous generations. That's not the case anymore. Now the case is we have to actually show people that there is a puzzle and help them build that one together over a longer period of time and over multiple engagements as we build authentic relationships with one another. It's a completely different world in how we do ministry nowadays. Now, West Meadows was one of the very first buildings that was built in this region, in this area of Lewis Farms. And over 15,000 people have moved into the area and built homes and established themselves around us over the past 25 years. Now, there's opportunity in that. That means there's opportunity because we have incredible resources and blessings that we can use to become stakeholders in people's communities in their lives. But it also means that there's a problem. Because that means that thousands upon thousands of people have moved into this area over the past couple of decades and have an incredible amount of spiritual apathy. Because we are the only church. Nobody at any point said, why don't we build another church? Why don't we move in another religious organization? Nobody asked those questions as they moved in because of spiritual apathy. It's the rise of the nuns. There was no need for it because there's no affiliation for it. And yet, God has called us as exiles. He's called us as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven to be in this place. And I say and I believe that we have a mission and we have a purpose from God to the community that's around us. Now, as you look back at the, kingdom of, uh, at the book of Jeremiah, something else I want to draw your attention to is that God gives these exiles instructions on how they are to live, how they are to engage the people in which he has placed them. How do they respond as exiles? Now, Israel is in a situation right now where they're being persecuted by those who are around them. 
there's a very real threat to their very existence. And they reach a point where they have to answer the question, what are we going to do? What is our response to this threat going to be? And in keeping with acute stress response theory, they have some options before them. Their very survival is threatened. Therefore, they can fight, flight, or freeze are the options they have. They could choose to just be frozen. They could choose as a, as a group of people to shrink back, to, to kind of lay low, to let's not make any waves. Let's just wait this thing out. And some people amongst them actually had risen up. And, and uh, Jeremiah referenced this near the end of that passage we read. Some people had actually risen up and had said, folks, don't worry about it. The imminent defeat of Babylon is near. We're going to be returning home soon enough. Don't, don't, even, don't unpack your bags. Just, just keep your stuff packed. Just lay low and wait for it to all be over. That was one choice they had. God says at the very end of that passage, that's not what his will is, that these are false prophets. They could have chosen to fled. They could have retreated and, and kind of circled the wagons and chosen this, this defensive position of just this cloistering together to solidify all of us who are the same. We all believe the same, look the same, act the same. Let, let's just all come together and solidify. Let's bar the doors. Let's cut off anything from outside interference, anything that we perceive as a threat to our status quo. Let's just bar it from us and we'll just solidify together. Or they could fight. They, they could go on the offensive and say, you may take our lives, but you will never take our freedom. Braveheart fans? Braveheart. Okay. Great line from Braveheart. <laughs> they could do things like that. Or, or in modern day equivalent, they could go on Facebook and post angry posts about how bad the Babylonians are. And sure that everybody on Facebook knows how much I don't like Babylonians. How much I'm not going to vote for them and, and how evil they are. And I don't like these people and what they stand for. They could go on the attack. The same options exist for the church today. We can either fight, we can flight, we can freeze. But I want to tell you this is actually if we choose any of those three options, what ends up happening is either we nullify our mission or we serve to increase the divide that already exists. Because God actually has a different plan. God says don't, don't shrink away. Don't cloister together. Don't go on the attack. He actually has a much simpler response. In verse 5 and 6 he says, Hey, guys, just, just live your lives. Just, just go live your lives in Babylon. He says, go build a house. Sell down and live in your house. Unpack your boxes, change your mailing address, hang your pictures on the wall, build yourself a house. Make a life for yourself. He says, go plant a garden. The food you brought with you is not going to last. Trust me, you're going to have time to sow the ground, plant some seed, to tend the crops, to reap, and repeat that a couple of times. Plant yourself a garden. He says, Mary... Marry and have kids. There's no reason to postpone the wedding. You're not going to get a date for a service back in Jerusalem. It's not going to happen anytime soon. Marry, don't postpone the wedding. Increase and thrive in numbers. In fact, don't just have kids. Have grandkids because you're going to be here a while. You'll be here long enough to have another generation grow up under that. It'll be more than one generation until it's time to come and go home. Live your lives. And then God says this to them in these instructions, these powerful words that I'm sure they definitely didn't want to hear. He said, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you. Seek their peace. Seek their prosperity. Pray for them. Pray for the community around you. Why? Because if they prosper, you prosper. Have you ever tried praying for the prosperity of somebody you're angry at? 
You ever tried praying for somebody that you feel this disconnect and you're really indifference to, to anger that you're fighting with? Oh, Lord, may that person that just cut me off get better than expected gas mileage. No. Oh, Lord, may my neighbor who's working the night shift have such a productive night while I listen to his dog bark all night. Oh, Lord, may the government coffers be blessed with the photo radar fine I just paid. Quite often when we're feeling at war with another person, our prayers have this tendency to, to drip with disdain and seek our own vindication. Because the reality is this. We cannot war against a people and reach them for Christ at the same time. We cannot do both simultaneously. You can only do one of those things. And here's the amazing thing that starts to happen when we pray for another person. Over time, it changes us. You see, prayer is like a boomerang. That we throw it, we throw our feelings, our words, our hopes to God, and they come back to us. God may, it may not come back to us, and God may not respond the way that we expected, but as it comes back to us, it comes back to us as blessing. And we can find ourselves at this point where we release the negative emotions. We can release the fear. We can transfer the consequences and transfer the need for justice from our hands into God's hands. And when we exist in a symbiotic relationship with other people or in a community, meaning that, that our lives are intertwined for mutual benefit, when we exist in a symbiotic relationship for them, whether that be as neighbors, as teammates, co-workers, spouses, when we exist in that relationship, when one prospers, so too does the other. And so if we are warring with our neighbor, I invite you to pray for them. If you are warring with your uncooperative coworker who just doesn't seem to get it, I encourage you to pray for them. If you and your spouse have not talked for a couple of days, start a prayer. Start there. Because in all of these situations, when they prosper, when we pray for their benefit, it changes us. It invites God into the situation. And when they prosper, it brings blessing back to us. Now, we are definitely not warring with the community that is around us. As we can see, for example, through extravaganza, hundreds and hundreds of people are coming to join together as we co-host a family event in the coming weeks. There are hundreds who have already responded to say that they are coming. And we're doing this together. We are working together to increase ways that we, with our community, can serve the families of Lewis Farms. But God directed us to do more than just live among them. He invited us to pray for them, to seek their prosperity that they would be blessed, and that as they prosper, we would prosper too. You see, if nothing else, we are geographically in a symbiotic relationship with Lewis Farms. They may have a different address than you, a different postal code. They may, they may have a different, different position and worldview than some of us here. But we are in a symbiotic relationship with the community in which we geographically reside. And we cannot deny the fact that when the community around us prospers, so too will we prosper along with them. You know, in this, in this direction, to bless and to live good lives as strangers in a foreign land doesn't just show up for, for exiles in Jeremiah's time. It actually shows up in the New Testament as well. Uh, Peter adds to this, picking up on some of the same ideas in 1 Peter chapter 1, writing his letter there to, as he puts it, God's exiles scattered throughout Western Asia. He, he's in this passage revealing what the missional purpose of exiles are. And he takes it a step further than Jeremiah did. 
See, now Peter is writing to Jewish people who have been scattered throughout a region. These Jewish believers who are displaced from their homeland of Israel as well. And, and here, this will sound very, very sim- similar in, in theme and purpose, but here's what we see in 1 Peter chapter, one, uh, ch- chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sex- uh, sinful desires which wage war against our souls. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We see this edict again. This idea that we, that they in this particular case are foreigners and exiles. Meaning that they are citizens of God who are living in a strange land. And he again tells them, live good lives. Good lives of mutual benefit to you and to those that you live around. But here he goes a little bit step further to reveal to us the desired outcome of doing this, of following through on this. You see, now one of the opportunities, but also one of the challenges that exist in engaging with the community uh, or engaging with the world, uh, the pagan world as he refers to it here, meaning those people who have their minds and hearts set upon the things of the world, one of the opportunities and the challenges that exist in doing so is, is the question, who is going to influence who? Are we going to become more like them? Or are they going to become more like us? That was a very real threat and opportunity that exists for the people of Israel and Babylon, for for these Jewish believers who exist throughout Western Asia. And it's a very real question and challenge for us as we engage the community around us. Who is going to influence who? Will we become more like them or will they become more like us? And the way that we answer this question is determined by what we do and what we do not do. And in this passage, we see that, that Peter tells them to avoid certain things, to avoid those things that, that are contrary to the will and the character of God. He, he's saying, watch your language. Watch what shows you watch on Netflix. Be careful of how you view other people and other people groups. Be careful about how you deal with stress, how, how you indulge in, in things that alleviate stress. Is, are you escaping them? Are you embracing them? Be careful of these things. Avoid these things that will be harmful to your soul. So avoid things, but also we need you to engage in things. We need to engage in things that will build up a person, that will promote God's care for others. So engage in things like having your space in place so that you have your regular space in place to read God's word. Have your regular prayer life. Have fellowship with other believers. Share your faith with those around you. Go forward with demonstrations of love and grace. But just like Jeremiah, the solution is not to cloister. It's not to withdraw. It's not to isolate. It is to live your life, engaging in things that build up and avoiding things that tear down. So go to the hockey game and cheer for the Oil Kings because the Oilers are done, but the Oil Kings are winning, right? So go to the hockey game and cheer for the team. Just don't guzzle beer all night. Send your kids to school. Learn what they're learning about what they're experiencing, what they're feeling. Join the PTA and have a voice into what's happening there. Have non-Christian friends, but, but don't, don't talk like they do or pursue the things of the world like they are, but do have relationships with them. Do share your life with them. Do invite them to things at church. Go to things that they invite you to that are appropriate and pray for their prosperity. Don't ignore the poor. Serve those who are underprivileged, underemployed, underhoused, whatever the case may be. Show kindness to all people. Live our lives in a way that God's will 
would be honored by. And if we become like the world, here's the big problem. If we become like the world and define ourselves as Christians, it changes the definition of that word. Where all of a sudden we meet somebody and they say, hey, you're a Christian, but you just look like him, 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 and her. All of a sudden, it loses its power, its meaning, that Christian refers to a person whose life has been transformed by Jesus Christ. And if we look like the world around us and simply call ourselves Christian, it simply looks like an allegiance to a set of beliefs and a philosophy. But that is not what Christianity is. Christianity is about the transforming power and presence of God in a person's life. Remember we talked about at the very start of today's message, the kingdom of God ruling and reigning in a person's life that transforms them and makes them citizens of heaven, that they are ambassadors in the here and now waiting for the day when they get called to their homeland. That is the definition we want to be looking for. And if we look the same as the world around us, it waters down that definition. That's the big danger in becoming like them. But when the world sees the difference that a life lived with Jesus makes, it has saving impact. When they see that practical example that life is better with Jesus, and when they want to know more about it, they know where to go. They know who to ask. And when Jesus talked about this himself, he he said it this way, though. He said, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. You see, salt as we know, commonly in our world, adds flavor to things. And I like to think that we as a church and as a people add flavor to the community around us. But I remember uh, a lady I used to work with when I was going to university, uh, she loved salt. Like, like she, we would order pizza for lunch, and she'd just start pouring salt on top of her pizza. She loved salt <laughs> a lot. But that's, that's not really what Jesus is talking about here. You see, in, in the time in which Jesus was writing this, salt had different purposes. It, it was used as a seasoning, but it was extremely valuable. And so you wouldn't just put it on a piece of pizza. It was too valuable for that. It, and that's where the, one of the sayings comes from, that he's worth his weight, or he's worth his salt. You've probably heard that saying before. It's referring to this idea that, that salt has value as a form of currency, and that salt, therefore, adds value to what it is added on top of. And as followers of Jesus Christ, as ambassadors to the community around us, I think we add value. We have so much to offer to the world, to the community that exists around us when we engage in them. But salt was also used as a form of preserving. Because they didn't have refrigerators or freezers, and yet they had to find some way to make meat, for example, last a long time. So they would cure meat with salt, and that would make it last. They would have salted meats. And I think we can see the spiritual application of this is pretty clear is that as we are salt of the earth, Peter is saying, or just as Peter said in his verse on the screen there, that when they see our good deeds and they glorify God when he visits us. Meaning that when they see our good deeds, when they see us as the salt of the earth, it has a saving impact upon them that they too can become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And he says that we're the light. Now, as we understand this word light, and you've probably heard in previous messages spoken on this passage before, light has the power to take away darkness. Light has a way to bring things into the light so they can be dealt with. Whether we talk about that practically and we talk about that spiritually, light has that power. But here's what I want you to recognize about this phrase for today's purposes. is that What I want you to recognize is that Jesus does not say we have the light meaning the good news of Jesus Christ, which is how this is often referred to. He is saying, you are the light. It's not a matter of just having something that illuminates, which the good news of Jesus Christ does. He says, you are 
the light. You are the light. You are strangers and exiles placed in a dark land. We are people who are called with a missional purpose to go and to let our light shine to the place at which we're posted. We are salt. We add value. We bring the preserving reality of the good news of Jesus Christ. But we are also light, meaning that we can bring a revealing presence that addresses the needs of the world around us, be those relational, practical, or spiritual needs. You see, folks, I believe that we are to strengthen communities. And we have a community around us that needs us to help strengthen them. And we can do that by investing all that we are. Who are we? We are exiles. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. And everything that goes along with that, we can invest that. We can invest all that we are to do all that we can. Now the day will come when we'll no longer be known as strangers. The day will come when our name instead will simply be sons and daughters. But until that day, we have been given so much by God that we can use to build up our own church here. But as we talked about last week, our role is to not just build up, but to reach out to the surrounding community. We have this incredible building. We are the only facility that has the means by which to host events and meetings and school concerts to the point where currently we have over 10,000 community people a year come through this building. That is a resource we have to extend to them. We have people. This is an active community around us that is looking for ways that they can engage in recreation and family-type events to build relationships. But they need volunteers. They need people to help them out. We have the ability to assist them with that. They need experience. We have that to offer. Not only are we a place and the people to facilitate things, but we have the know-how. And we have this incredible gift of hospitality which makes us available for these intended purposes. We have the means by which to offer services in the form of benevolent help, counseling, education, the daycare that is going to be coming into our buildings in the near future. We're offering services that are very much in need in the world around us. And we have the good news of Jesus Christ, which is the absolute greatest resource and thing that we can offer to the community. Because that is what can change a life. That is what can change a destiny. And that is what allows people to find out that life is better with Jesus. So as you walk out these doors in a few moments, as you drive through the community, you may not feel a sense of connection always. I know last year we, we were struggling with that a bit. So, so we got leadership together and people from the church to go do prayer walks throughout the community. Because we wanted to see the community. We wanted to meet some people. We wanted to start to feel that growing connection with the community. Now, even if your address doesn't match, this is where we come to as a church family. This is where we come to, to, come to, to grow together, to learn together, to, to build one another up. And even though the world out there may be different in a lot of ways, just as God has told his people in the past, and I believe he wants us to know today, is that we are to pray for the world around us. We are to live among them. We are to befriend them. And I pray that we'll go live salty lives. Not in the grouchy, mean way but in the transforming, preserving way that we would live salty lives and allow our lights to shine so that people can understand that life is better with Jesus. So with that challenge, that reminder, I want to invite you if you would stand as the worship team comes back and join me in a, in a word of prayer here as they come to the platform. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that you have had a plan 
that you have been calling and preparing your people here at West Meadows for a long time. God, this world has grown up around us. We've been a part of it. We've been among it, God, but, but there's so much more that we have yet to do. God, may we understand what it means for us to, to be ambassadors of the good news of Jesus Christ, that we not only have a message, but that we have been transformed by that message and therefore can go forth as light, light that finds its source in you, not in ourselves or of ourselves, but a light that has source in you, Lord, that as we go into the world, we can illuminate the needs that exist. We can address the needs that exist. We can help people come to understand that life is better with Jesus than any other option that they may be pursuing, than any other philosophy that they may come across. Because only Jesus Christ, whom is our passion, has a transforming power to change a life, to change a destiny, to change a person to a son and daughter of the living God. I pray, God, that as we understand that to be our passion, people would see that passion through us and come to wonder, how can I have that in my life? And that we would be the ambassadors who point them towards Jesus. We pray this in your holy name.